0: Pray with me. My Father in heaven, we do give you praise and now we come to listen to you. Um, That you, we would hear from you, that we would open your word and Father that you would speak to us. We pray that you would do that. I pray that you would grant to each of us undivided hearts, that you would unite within us each heart meaning, Father, that there would be no other affection other than for You, no other interest other than in You, no other attention other than for You, no other focus other than upon You. Father, we pray that You would grant to us grace to love You, to seek You, to listen to You, to obey You and You alone. So help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Ezekiel in chapter... Twenty one, I want to read verses eighteen to twenty seven. Ezekiel in chapter twenty one. Ezekiel twenty one and verse eighteen. The word of the Lord came to me again. As for you, son of man, mark two ways for the sword of the King of Babylon to come. Both of them shall come from the same land, and make a signpost, make it at the head of the way to a city. Mark a way for the sword to come to Rabbah of the Ammonites, and to Judah into Jerusalem the fortified. For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the way at the head of the two ways, to use divination. He shakes the arrows, he consults the teraphim, he looks at the liver. Into his right hand comes the divination for Jerusalem to set battering rams, to open the mouth with murder, to lift up the voice with shouting, to set battering rams against the gates, to cast up mounds, to build siege towers. But to them it will seem like a false divination. They have sworn solemn oaths, but he brings their guilt to remembrance that they may be taken. Therefore, thus says the Lord God. Because you have made your guilt to be remembered, in that your transgressions are uncovered, so that in all your deeds your sins appear. Because you have come to remembrance, you shall be taken in hand. And you, O profane wicked one, Prince of Israel, whose day has come, the time of your final punishment, thus says the Lord God. Remove the turban and take off the crown, things shall not remain as they are. Exalt that which is low and bring low that which is exalted. A ruin, 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 I will make it. This also shall not be until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. I want to draw your attention to that last verse, verse 27. Focus our attention on that. A ruin, 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 I will make it. This also shall not be until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. And I concentrate our attention there, because that verse is about Jesus. They say that. Because you remember that as we come to Ezekiel, he's been prophesying and he continues to. He prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem. He's been, he's been on this theme now for quite some time. Uh, in a variety of ways, and one of the ways in which Ezekiel prophesies, we know, is through these en- enactments, that is, he, he puts on a little skit, really, and that skit, that enactment, is to show the word of God, and, and that word of God now towards the destruction of Jerusalem. And this particular enactment is one in which Ezekiel seems to play the part of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and he takes out a sword, and, and, uh, and as he does that, he's to also put up a signpost. There's a fork in the road, and unlike Yogi, who said, "When there's a fork in the road, take it." Um, he, there's a fork in the road, and he puts up a signpost—one to Rabbah that goes to the Ammonites, and one that uh, points to Jerusalem of Judea. And presumably, the king of Babylon, who is going to ultimately bring destruction upon Jerusalem—at least that's what's been prophesied thus far—king of Babylon comes up to this signpost and he looks at it and he wonders which way he should go, because it in some sense he's going to to destroy both of them. And so it's more in the sense of which am I coming to first, Rabbah or Jerusalem? And so by divination, by his own means, by his own ways, uh, he he tries to determine what that will be. He shakes the arrows, which is a a way sort of of like drawing straws. Basically, if you have a quiver of arrows and you could take and mark one of them, Rabbah of the Ammonites, one of Jerusalem, shake them up and see which one you pull out first. And he pulled out Jerusalem, so that would tell him by way of this divination that he should go to Jerusalem. It says he consults the teraphim, which are the little household idols that they would keep in their pockets, that they would keep with them. And somehow there must have been a way to discern in their own minds at least what this household idol, what this idol would tell them to do. And then it said they also um, looked at the liver. Um, They would sacrifice an animal and there were certain priests for whom it was their gift in their minds, to be able to look at the spots on the liver and and determine what they ought to do, it's rather like palm reading, just a little messier. Uh, but uh, but that was sort of the way they would divine, if you will, or come to know that in this occultish fashion what they were to do. And interestingly, so that was this enactment, and it all would come up. Each one come up Jerusalem, that the king of Babylon Nebuchadnezzar was to go into Jerusalem and destroy it. Now the people in Jerusalem thought, "Oh, this will never happen." You know, they've been in denial ever since Ezekiel has been prophesying concerning the destruction of Jerusalem. And, uh, and so he says, this will never happen. But then their guilt and their sin is remembered. And you go, oh yes, this will happen. This is right. But really, what, what what the focal point here is, is a prophecy, not just against Jerusalem, but against the king. Notice in verse 25. You remember at this point, the king in Jerusalem is a man by the name of Zedekiah, who's not a holy man is not a righteous king. And so this is what it says verse twenty five And you, O profane wicked one, Prince of Israel, whose day has come, the time of your final punishment, thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crown. In other words, we're taking off all your kingly garments, and uh, you're going to be dethroned. Uh, so so there will no longer be a king in Jerusalem, and it will be destroyed. Now, if you're a Jewish and you're in Jerusalem or you're one of the exiles in Babylon, Jewish exiles in Babylon, you're thinking, How could that be? How is it that Jerusalem cannot have a king? Wasn't the promise to King David that one will sit on your throne eternally all the time? Uh what's the deal? How is it that a king will not be there in Jerusalem? Would be very shocking, very disturbing. Um and so he goes on, verse twenty seven. He says, A ruin, ruin, ruin. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. That's a very literal translation. God isn't being verbose here; is not being redundant by repeating the word ruin three times. It's simply the way, for people who know Hebrew, uh, it's simply the way that the Hebrew superlative is put. For instance, uh, when we read the phrase, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, it means he's the holiest. It's holy, holier, and holiest. And holiest in Hebrew is holy, holy, holy. And basically, there's ruin, ruiner, and ruinist. Okay? All you grammarians out there, my apologies. There's ruin, more ruin, and most ruin. And the way that one says that in Hebrew is ruin, ruin, ruin. This is going to be utterly destroyed. Jerusalem. Flattened. Ruined. A ruin, ruin, ruin. I will make it. This also shall not be until he comes. Uh, uh-uh, who? Until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, it could also be translated, the one to whom it, the throne, rightfully belongs, and I will give it to him. And that's from God. Now, what does that mean? Turn quickly. Got to do some teaching here for us to get this. Um, Genesis in chapter 49. Genesis in chapter 49. This, Genesis 49, is a place in Scripture where Jacob is putting a blessing upon his sons. you remember? The patriarchs of Israel, those who carried the covenant promise. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Before Jacob dies, brings them all together and he begins to pronounce a prophetic blessing upon them. Now typically, in such a situation, the firstborn son would be the most blessed. In two ways. One, the firstborn son would receive the birthright. That is a double portion of blessing. He would get twice as much in inheritance as all the other sons. Then secondly, because he's the firstborn, he would be the one to carry on the family name, if you will. He would be the new patriarch of the family. If there were difficulties in the context of the family, they would come back to him. Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob. He had sinned grievously against his father in an act of immorality, and therefore he did not receive the birthrights, nor received the blessing of being the next patriarch. Joseph, interestingly enough, got, a double, got the double portion of inheritance. You can read about that in First Chronicles chapter 5, if you're interested in that. But Joseph gets the uh, double portion of inheritance. But the fourth son, Judah, becomes preeminent. Notice, Genesis 49, verse 8. Judah says he's remember he's got his sons together he's got Judah there may have his hand on him Judah your brothers shall praise you that's an interesting play on words because Judah means to praise Judah your brothers shall praise you your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies your father's son shall bow down before you Judah is a lion's cub lion King, king of the beast, king of the forest. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? In other words, Judah, you're going to be praised. Judah, you're going to be preeminent among all the brothers. You're going to be the, the one whose enemies are under your feet, if you will. And then he goes on to say, in verse 10, the scepter, now a scepter is sort of a hand Uh, held crown, it's a rod, a scepter, the king would hold. And when you would see that scepter, you would go, oh, he's the king, just in the same sense if you saw a crown on his head, you'd say, oh, that's the king. Well, the scepter says, I rule, and I rule with this rod. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, that is, this ruling will always stay in the tribe of Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, I'm reading out of the ESV, we'll do some other translations in a second, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now, that little expression I read, until tribute comes to him, meaning he gets what is rightfully his, what belongs to him. Now in the King James Version, some of you may have grown up, if if you memorized this verse as a prophecy of Christ, you would have memorized, until Shiloh comes. Now, that kind of always sounded like a Western to me. Uh, You know, should have been one of the rawhide boys. Uh, Shiloh comes. It's a difficult thing to translate. We don't think it's anywhere. Could be a proper name. But it could also be translated as is translated in Ezekiel. That is, until he comes to whom it rightfully belongs. And so get this. Jacob is saying, Judah, my son, the scepter, leadership, ruling, kingliness, will never ever leave your tribe until, that is, there's going to be one last one, until he comes, until Shiloh comes, until he comes to whom it really belongs. Interestingly enough, that would be the very one who would receive praise. That would be the very one who would be the preeminent one, the ruler. And then in verse 11, says, bringing his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter, whiter than milk. What in the world? That means, figuratively speaking, if to a good Hebrew, it means prosperity will come. Because you see, if you can tie your donkey up to a choice vine and nobody cares... It means there's a lot of choice vines out there. Choice vines just grow everywhere. They're just so common that you can hook up your donkey to it. And nobody really cares. That's an abundant, prosperous nation. And he says, uh, And he has washed his garments in wine, in his vestures in the blood of grapes. Now, I don't know that, I'm not too good on laundry, but I don't know that that's exactly what you'd want to do wash but but it's sort of like taking a milk bath. You know if you can afford to 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 do your laundry and wine, you're really rich. It's like lighting advent candles with hundred dollar bills. You know that when you get to that point, then that's his point here. When this one comes ultimately there's great blessing. There's no need now, who is this one who will come from the tribe of Judah? What's interestingly interesting in the in the uh, history of Israel? Of course, King David came from the tribe of Judah, and he was given a promise from God that said there will always be someone on this throne, at least figuratively. So, there will always be someone on this throne. And then as we read about the genealogies, we read the genealogies in, in, in Matthew and in Luke about Jesus, Mary and Joseph, we find they both come, interestingly enough, from Judah. In fact, you know this, when the angel comes to Mary in Luke in chapter 1, he says this to her, Luke chapter 1 and verse 31, he says, and beholds. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Ah, of the tribe of D- Judah, the, the 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 family of David, this one will come. Shiloh, this one to whom it belongs, this one will come. And we see it's traced all the way back to Genesis, all the way through the kings all the way through even Isaiah speaks of this child who will be born of David and his government, of his government. There shall be no end to its prosperity and its peace. And Even in Ezekiel we read, ah, yes, this one's coming. So it would have been very disheartening to the people in Ezekiel's day to realize there would be no king on the throne in Israel, in, in Jerusalem. Very disheartening. How could that be? He says, well, Wait. There still is a promise. Wait, this promise that was made all the way back through Jacob still is on the mind of God. Still, that will come to pass. Still, that will come true. And now we see it in Jesus, Mary, tribe of Judah, family of David. Jesus understood himself to be that very king because when he came on the scene, he announced his presence by saying, Repent, That has changed the way you've ever thought about everything. Repent, for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he knew it was at hand. He knew it was right there because he was right there. You remember when Jesus was before Pilate. Pilate was very insecure with Jesus in his presence because he didn't like competition. And he said, I've heard that you're a king. Are you really a king? And Jesus said, Don't worry, my kingdom's not of this world. If it were, my servants would come and they would have already overturned your government. This isn't what I'm after. I'm not after your throne. I'm not after your palace. For my kingdom isn't of this world, it's deeper, it's greater, it's higher, more significant than that. It's the very kingdom of God. And so, I embellished a bit there towards the end. Now, it's in John 18, so you can check me. But, Pilate comes back and says, so then you are a king. And Jesus says, well, that's what you say. Which was Jesus' way of saying, that's right. Not only am I a king, but you need to understand, I think it's in the mind of Jesus, I'm the king. King, the very one who's to come from Judah, from David. I'm the last, for I'm the first and the last, and this is all that's necessary. And when I come, I'll be praised. When I come, then I'll bring great, great blessing. The people understood Jesus as coming as a king on that day that we call Palm Sunday. The people gathered around and said, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of... Of the Lord. That's what they said. All throughout Scripture, we read of, of Jesus as this, this very one who is the King. For instance, in Colossians and chapter 1 and verse 13, we heard this before uh, or as we were singing, um, speaks of God and Jesus. He delivered us from the domain, dominion of darkness and transformed us in the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption. Uh, the forgiveness of sins. We know the passage in Philippians. In chapter 2. and verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess. That Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. He is in fact the king. In First Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 25. The apostle writes that he is now. Jesus ruling and reigning. Until all of his enemies. Are brought. Under his feet. When John sees Jesus in the great revelation, he says, Now there is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In fact, when he sees Jesus around the throne, he says, There is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Just what Jacob said. There would come a lion from the tribe of Judah. And he would be the one to whom the throne would rightfully belong. And there was Jesus on the throne and he had just been given the scrolls of history to unfold. Now, that would give a fair measure of hope, a little bit of hope, to the people in Ezekiel's day. They knew they were going to be destroyed, but they also knew that a day would come when this king would come, this Shiloh would come, when the, when the one who really should occupy this throne should come. Because you see, they must have realized that they had never had a king to really rightly rule them. Because they kept rebelling against God. You see, Israel's key enemy was not Nebuchadnezzar. Israel's enemy was not Babylon. Israel's enemy was the rebelliousness of their own hearts. They really had seen, they really had met the enemy. And they were, in fact, the enemy. They were their own enemies. It was their own sin that was their great problem. And what they needed, really, was a king who would rule them, a king who would keep them, a king who would protect them, a king who would keep them, not simply from all these other nations, but keep them following after God. That's what they needed. And they would realize, we haven't had one like that. Ah, it's this one, perhaps, who is to come. That would be their hope. So I have this question that I've been playing with all week. I'm so glad you're here so I can have you play with it with me. This is what's been on my mind. How does it bring me hope since I really do believe that Jesus has come, that Jesus really is this one to whom the throne belongs? How does it give me hope to know that Jesus now rules and reigns? How does it give me hope to know that he really is ruling and reigning even now that the king has come? It's one of the things we celebrate at Christmas that the king has come, that Jesus has come. So how does it really give us hope? I listen to uh, uh how do I confess this? I listen to radio stations that aren't Christian radio stations generally. And I, I love Christian radio, but when I'm listening to it, I often feel like I'm at work, and I have to, I have to analyze it all. So I just sort of escape into other radio stations. They don't say bad words on the stations I listen to, so it's okay. But I've been listening to a station uh, that plays all Christmas music, but not Christmas music. Christmas music, rock and rolly kind of Christmas music, and it's just bad. Um, I, I just don't think rock and roll was made for Christmas, nor Christmas for rock and roll, no matter where you are. But that's sort of my sort of. Generation. So I listen to these, these horrible songs. But one of the things that, that, uh, one of the things that often arises in these songs is stuff like, Oh, that Christmas would last all year. That's impossible in a secular Christmas. Which is an interesting expression in itself, isn't it? A secular Christmas. But how, I don't know how else to, to say it. Christmas really without Christ, a Christmas really without the point, a Christmas really out acknowledging the fact that Jesus is the King. Now, we've been celebrating such Christmases, not we necessarily, but our country for a long time, and it hasn't really helped. Because the truth of the matter, Christmas really can't last all year, because it really isn't just sort of cleaning us up for a day. It really just isn't trying to make a meal for somebody that they wouldn't have Otherwise, it isn't just simply trying to give something a gift that they wouldn't otherwise have. You see, if we mean to take that all year long, it means that that's who we are. People like that. I see the, 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 the problem is that if all we're trying to do is clean up our act for a day, get along with everybody for a day, do nice things for one another, or even strangers for a day, It doesn't change the heart. That's why Christmas, secular Christmas, can't last all year long. And that's why Christian Christmas, can you believe I'm saying this? Christian Christmas must. See, when we speak of Jesus coming as king, it can be summarized like this. And so let me me rely on some old dead guys. The Westminster Confession of Faith, shorter catechism. I've done this to you before, so you should know question number 26. I should be able to just say, question 26. And you go, oh yeah, get on with it. But just in case. Shorter catechism, you know there's a shorter catechism and a larger catechism. And you know the difference, one's larger than the other. So in the shorter one, question 26 is this. How does Christ execute his office as king? That's the question. That's the question we ask. The king has come. Okay, how does he do that? What's he do as king? What's Jesus do as king? How does he do that? The answer is this. It says first, he exercises his office as king by. he had this word. By first subduing us to himself. Second, by ruling and defending us. Third, by restraining and conquering all his enemies and ours. More could be said, but I just want to concentrate our attention here. First, he exercises his office, executes his office as king, by subduing us to himself. Secondly, by ruling and defending us. Thirdly, in restraining and conquering all his enemies and ours. Let me just take them very quickly. Number one, by subduing us to himself. You see, as the king, he has authority. And he has authority over everything and everyone. Remember, before he ascended, he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's all authority. Everything, everyone comes under the authority of Jesus because he is the king. In fact, he puts it even more pointedly, and I think, more helpfully for us in this context, in his prayer in John 17, as he's praying right before he's crucified. uh, Verse 1 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him that is, given Jesus, since you have given him authority over all flesh, that is, over everybody, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. See, Jesus says, I'm the king, and I have authority from God, as God. I have authority to give then eternal life to all those the Father Has given me. That is he's saying as the king. I have the right to come and subdue people. To myself. To change their hearts. Which is exactly what the people in Jerusalem needed. But there wasn't a king at the moment there to do that. Zedekiah didn't do that. Zedekiah didn't turn the hearts of the people. To God. He couldn't. He was powerless to do that. First because of his own heart. Second because he couldn't get into their lives. Spiritually. And give them a new heart. That's why we'll come upon a passage in Ezekiel 36 that gives us the great news about a new heart and a new spirit being given. And now, the one to whom the throne belonged, the king comes, who has authority over the hearts of people. Imagine that. The hearts of people. And he can subdue them, call them, and he does it by his word and by his spirit. As the very word of God is declared, as the very word of God goes out, as the gospel is being shared, as people talk about Jesus, and talk about sins and forgiveness of sins, and talk about love, and redemption. You see, people's, people's hearts are subdued, are brought, rescued, captured, captivated to Jesus. That's to give us hope. I don't know about you, but my very hope for my very salvation is the very fact that that's happened, that God has subdued me, called me, caused me to come by changing My heart. Uh, Jesus, of course, uses the image. He uses the image we speak about quite often because it's a prevalent one and a helpful one. And that is that in order to see, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, in order to enter the kingdom of God, one must be born again. That is, have a spiritual birth, a birth by the Holy Spirit. And you see, when the kingdom of God comes upon us, it isn't something that we've done in order to take it, it's something he's done to us in order to enable us to enter. And what he does, it, he gives us new life so we may enter into the kingdom of heaven. And of course, if you're like me, you had pretty much nothing to do with your birth physically. Do you remember speaking to your parents about it? I'd sure like to be born. No, oh, that's the amazing thing about conception. It had nothing to do with the birth e the one being born. Everything to do with the ones the birther. The the, the ones conceiving. That's why I, I tease and I've shared this with you before. I just think it's cute. I always tell my children on their birthday they should get us a present. <laughs> no congratulations to them for being born. I mean, they didn't have anything to do with it. Karen reminds me that She's the one who should get the present. And uh, she's no doubt right on that one. But, But you see, who gets the praise? Who gets the Judah? Who gets the praise when the king comes and captures our hearts? He does. What's your hope, if you have children, for the salvation of your children? That you're able to change their hearts so that they can... Your hope for your children, our hope for the children in our church, the hope of every Sunday school teacher who teaches our kids all the way from little kids all the way to youth, is that the king has authority over their hearts. And he can come by his own sovereign will and discretion and change them. That's what we hope. That's what we need those regular kings all throughout the days of Israel didn't help them because they couldn't keep them following after God but this king who has authority over our hearts and the authority to enter into our very lives mysteriously I know there are questions about this but just flush them for a minute and enjoy this that that, that he's the king and he's the one who has authority over hearts and so we can trust in him that is our hope secondly he says he comes to rule and defend us and most certainly he does because he's the king kings get to rule that's what they do and they rule, number one, in, in our own lives, we to follow after them. There's, a, there's an expression that Jesus uses when he's with his disciples. You can find it in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, where Jesus says to them, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And yet you do not do the things which I say. Uh, he's really appealing to logic there. He's saying, he's saying yeah, if, if I were Jesus, I would have simply put it like this. Not being Jesus, I don't have a chance to do that, but let me just do it. You know, the expression no, N-O, Lord, no Lord, is an oxymoron. Because if he's the Lord, you can't say no. And if you say no, he's not the Lord. I mean, just that's just the way words work. And so, he says to them logically, you call me Lord, but are, am I really ruling you? Because you see, when the kingdom of God comes, when the king comes, it means the very rule of God comes. And he says, what that means is that you come to follow me, to repent of you and follow me. Turn aside from what you were following and come now and wholeheartedly follow after me that I might rule you. And he rules us by his word as we receive the very wisdom of God. And this isn't a tyrannical rule where he has us under his thumb, but this is the rule of the king who loves us and everything he commands and everything he says is wisdom. And everything that he commands and everything that he says is best. So he says, follow me, I'll rule you. And not only that, he rules us because he rules everything, if you will, on behalf of his people. Uh, Ephesians, in chapter 1, in verse 22, uh, Paul puts it like this of Jesus. And he says, and he, that is God the Father, he put all things under his feet, that is Jesus. God the Father put all things under the feet of Jesus and gave Jesus as head over all things to the church. He's, he's, he's our head and he's been given to us as he rules and reigns and he does so for the blessing for the benefit of his people how amazing is that how hopeful is that now granted we look into the world we look into the context sometimes of our own lives and we said "He's a funny way of doing this of ruling over everything and being sovereign over everything but our hope, our trust is, but he is the king who loves us and is wise. And he is ruling so we know that whatever comes into our lives isn't by accident, but under the rule of this, of this king who has subdued us to himself and rescues us. He, he rules us. He defends us. The scripture says he intercedes for us. He lives to intercede for us. He is our advocate, the scripture says. So that if anything comes against us, it's as if it comes against Jesus himself. There's a great expression in the Old Testament to describe the people of God. And it's just this, that God says, you are the apple of my eye. Now, figuratively, that means the apple of my eye, the most sensitive place upon me. So that if anything irritates that, and it's the most sensible place. You see, if we were the elbow of his arm, I'm not sure he'd feel that much. You know, elbows is... But the apple of his eye, He's saying, whatever, whatever touches that, it could be just something very small. Have you ever been on the beach and have a speck of sand go into your eye? Your whole body says, I don't like this. It isn't just your eye that says, I don't like this, but everything says, I don't like this. You stop, you scratch, your nose runs, everything happens, everything responds to this stupid little speck. And he says, listen, that's the way it is. If anything comes against you, then I defend you. I know this. Paul, on the road to Damascus, meets Jesus. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? If I was Paul, I would have said, I haven't touched you. he had because he had been persecuting the people of God and so Jesus lives to speak our name to intercede for us, to defend us at every turn and at every point That's that's our hope and he calls and he comes also to restrain, to conquer his enemies and ours all the time now we know in one sense that means that when he returns that all of his enemies, all of sin and all of its consequences will be banished from the new earth But he says, even now that's taking place. Even now Jesus is ruling and reigning until all his enemies are put under his feet. Do you know how he does that? He does that obviously by his providence. He does that obviously throughout history. He does that through his word as it's declared. But he does it also through us. Do you realize that when you think pure thoughts as opposed to impure thoughts by the Spirit of God, you're defeating the enemies of Christ? Because the enemies of Christ want us to think impure thoughts. Do you understand that when you speak words of truth and love and grace, that the enemies of Christ are being defeated because they want us to speak words of dissension and slander and hatred. Do you understand? That in the context of your life, when you're being patient and kind and loving and forgiving, that you're defeating the enemies of Christ. Do you understand that when you're in your jobs and when you're in, in the fields of education and when you're in government and you're living lives of integrity and justice and wholeness and righteousness and you're treating people as they deserve to be treated, you're, you're defeating the very enemies of Christ. Because the enemies of Christ would like us to be at war with each other. And to hate each other. So we see that Christ is at work even now in the context of our very lives. He subdues us. He rules us. He defends us. He's conquering his enemies and ours all the time. They're falling at our right hand and at our left. So we don't need to be afraid. We can be utterly secure. We know that we're in him. We know that he's protecting us. He's protecting our faith. He's protecting everything about us that we belong to him. And we're secure in that. And we know that nothing can stand really against us as we stand in Christ. So now the question is, is this true? <laughs> can you and I, can we really have assurance that this really is true? And how would we get that? Well, one of the ways is I could go back through and I could read you the Bible from Genesis Revelation. Um, Give me enough years and we'll get that done. But read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. From the Judah lion to the Jesus lion. All the way from one end to the other to help bring that assurance. And that's certainly one way, but there's another way which God has given to us mysteriously. And I want to use that way today. Am I? There we go. There you go. I want to use that way today. And that's this, this sacrament. People often ask me, What happens during communion? The short answer is I don't really know. The answer I get paid to give is this. Something. Because you see, this is the table of the Lord and he gave it to us that we might think upon him and remember him. And as we do, our spiritual forefathers have said that we're to feed upon Christ by faith at his table. And as we do, that our faith is to be strengthened and our faith is to be nourished. And for a preacher that is a user of words, this is scary because God says, Don't talk, take. There's nothing magic. But he says, there's something, I want to give you this to authenticate by word. I want to give you this in symbol form. I want to give you this to enact. I want to give you this so that it will strengthen your faith. Amazingly, mysteriously as you come to Christ by faith. He said, but, but can't my faith be strengthened as I read the word by faith? And the answer, of course, yes. Isn't my faith strengthened as I pray? Yes. Isn't my faith strengthened as I hear preaching, as I come into fellowship? Yes. Certainly yes. So this isn't necessarily better, but different. He said, I want to give you this bread and this juice so that it will give you assurance that I really am the king that I really have subdued your heart, that I really do rule and defend you, that I'm really ruling and reigning even now, conquering enemies left and right. So I come to offer this in the name of Jesus, that on the day in which he was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And again, this bread and this juice is bread and juice, very common. But at the table of Jesus, it causes us to meet him, to think about him, to fellowship with him, to come to him. And when we do, he meets us. And I believe assures us that he is the king. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would set apart this bread and this juice to use in a way that will grant to us strengthened faith. Assurance. The King is here. He's come. He rules and reigns. The only way into His kingdom is through Him. The only way into His kingdom is by His cross work. The only way into His kingdom is by His spirit work. For it's His kingdom and He rules We are to obey and to trust. He defends. We're to have hope. He defeats all of these enemies. Thus we're to walk in assurance and confidence that nothing can ultimately harm us. Father, I pray that you would use this bread and juice in a way that would assure us of all of that and so much more of the blessing of Christ. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, I pray that you would grant to us assurance that the King has come. And Father, you would give us undivided hearts knowing that truth. We wouldn't waver. We wouldn't think that there's another who's ruling and reigning. We wouldn't think that there's another who can change our hearts, but only Christ himself. And we would give him praise for that. And that we would trust him to follow him, knowing that he's ruling and defending. And that we would walk with him in such a way that his enemies would fall left and right. So, Father, seal to us all these benefits. Grant to us the assurance of all these benefits that are ours in Christ Jesus. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you that there are elders available to pray, so please take advantage of that. And secondly, I remind you that the response to the benediction is our advent response, which is Christ has come, Christ is coming again, hallelujah. Now when you say Christ has come, you're saying, oh, the king has come, he really has. He subdued my heart, he's ruling and reigning. When you say, He's coming again, you're saying, Ah, oh, yes, when He comes, I'll see the fullness of all that He has brought. And we'll live together on the new earth in a way that only reflects Him. And when you say, Hallelujah, you're saying, I really, really like that. Okay? So please receive this as God's benediction. Now to Him, who was able to keep you from falling, and to present you blameless before His glorious presence, and that with great joy. It's only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Christ has come. Christ is coming again. Hallelujah.